Uh, hi, everybody. Um, my name is Kathy, and I am recovering one day at a time in the worldwide Al-Anon family groups. Hi, everybody. I would like to begin by thanking um, Larry for your invitation to come and speak, and Kathy certainly for chairing this um, convention, conference, and Lauren for willingly agreeing to um, host me. You know, um, in 2015, well, I guess it was just last year. <laughs> so last year, Ohio, we have Al-Anon state conventions as well, and it was Cincinnati's turn to host the convention. And a rep came to our my home group and said, well, we're not we're gonna have to cancel the convention because nobody's willing to do it. And I thought, well that's crazy. I mean I'm pretty sure my home group could run the United Nations. I mean I can't imagine that it so I went and called a friend of mine who's in that group but wasn't there that day and I said, Sue, I have this proposition if you will chair the thing, I will be your co-chair. How hard can it be? <laughs> yes, so as you know, it really involves so much work to put on a convention. I mean, just, I don't know if you always meet here, but finding a place, securing a place that fits for everybody in the state, and I mean, there's just so many things to consider. Just the cost of coffee, we found, $30 a gallon. So we thought it would be cheaper to serve wine. I mean, it was just like $30 a gallon. I mean, so I have a deep respect. Um, I always have, but it's deepened since, um, you know, since my experience with the Ohio State Al-Anon Convention last year. So thank you to everybody and all the work that goes into it. It's incredible. But what I also found, it's also a huge, um, I'm afraid I'm going to electrocute myself. I mean, after all the warnings about tornadoes and fires, now I think I'm going to get electrocuted. Where the hell am I? I mean, <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> so, um, so anyway, now I can't remember what I was going to say, but I'm just glad, I'm glad to be here. And I mean that sincerely. I am really glad to be here. I am really glad to be here. I had a daughter who once lived in Peoria, and all I remember is that behind her house there was cornfields as far as you could see. But it was gorgeous. I mean, it was just lovely, particularly at this time of year. So anyway, um, well, what can I tell you? Um, I grew, I mean, I, my mother has just moved, and we're still in the process of moving her actually, from a home in which she and my father, uh, bought in 1963. My dad died in 94. My mother just moved into a two-bedroom apartment, into an independent living situation. She will be 100 in May. No, oh, believe me, she doesn't do anything. I mean, she will say she hasn't done anything to deserve that. Her own mother lived to be about 106. I mean, they just live a long time. I don't know why. She doesn't do anything you're supposed to do. I mean, she doesn't drink water. She doesn't exercise. But there she is, as sharp as a tack and almost 100. But I guess what I wa I'm bringing that up is um, she's moved, but she's left behind all this stuff that nobody really wants. I mean, she has a, a, one of those stupid. Well, I, I don't forgive me if you have one, but you know how you buy, you know, those little Christmas sets. They're not even really very good. They just have holly. She has Christmas setting for twenty people. Nobody wants that. I, I said to my son, I'm pretty sure your wife wants it. And he said, Mom, if you tell her about that, I will never speak to you again as long as I live. But the reason I bring it up is because somebody, as we were moving junk out, somebody found this type letter on the lawn. And uh, they gave it to me. And here it was this letter that my father had typed in, well, it must have been in 1942 or 43, because he typed it while he was stationed at West Point during World War II, 
on the occasion of their second wedding anniversary. And it was, I just started, I had mom with me because she was afraid she had left something she, she might want to, you know, hold on to. And she said, what is that? And I said, I don't know. Somebody just found it on the lawn. I started to read it. And I said, Mom, this is, I don't want to read this. This is your, this is a letter that Dad wrote to you on your second wedding anniversary. And she said, well, what does it say? And I just started to read the beginning. And I said, you take it with you and read the rest. It's too personal. It just struck me again when I, when I got this letter. I mean, when I saw this letter. I came out of a home where my father and mother really just adored one another particularly my dad, I have to say. He just thought my mother was the greatest thing in the world. And as kids, I'm one of six, as children, we we knew that the most important relationship in that house was the, re, the, the relationship, that love relationship between my mother and father. That's what I grew up with. I grew up trusting happiness. And I almost killed myself trying to recreate that in my own marriage when the material for that kind of intimacy was just simply never there as a result of alcoholism. It wasn't that, you know, my husband was a bad guy. It it was just, (laughs) I have a friend in my home group who talks about alcoholic spray. You know, it's just kind of alcoholism just kind of sprays itself all over everything. And it's kind of a crude, you know, image, but it's it's true. And so what I, I mean, I came out of a good place. I came out of a place where um, I had that kind of devotion. I saw that. I came out of a place where we were always taught that in the end, everything would be all right. That in the end, you know, God would take care of it. My mother used to say to us when we were little and something would go wrong, oh, it'll be better before you're married. I thought that was the dumbest thing. But <laughs> her point was, you know what, it's going to work out. It's going to be It's going to be fine. All is well. And I always had a sense growing up that I was enough. That I was enough. And if there's something that I love to share with women that I sponsor, it is this, that you are enough for today. You're enough for today. So now, of course, I mean, that's very, that's a very idyllic sort of memory. Um, But I mean, it wasn't a perfect way to grow up. I know that. We didn't take anything seriously. My whole family is terribly disrespectful, and they've got that awful, well, I don't know if it's Irish. My mother always says, oh, that's the Irish in us. It's just kind of a cutting kind of humor. But the thing that's great about it is that the first person we make fun of is ourselves. But it's very self-deprecating, and um, I don't remember ever having a serious discussion in my family. I said to my sister once, who's been married forever, as has almost everybody in my family, um, what do you think is the secret to your long, your long marriage, your long successful marriage? And she said, we never talk about anything serious. <laughs> so uh, I have that. and um, But, you know, I grew up, my parents were, were, you know, came out of the Depression. They came out of World War II. So there were always those, you know, things that you really didn't have anything to complain about. Um, when I have been in some meetings and I hear people say, well, I grew up in an alcoholic family and we were never allowed to feel our feelings. Well, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic family, although I come from a long line of Irish people who do do enjoy drink. But we weren't allowed to, I mean, nobody asked me how I felt about anything. No one ever said to me, well, how do you feel about that? They didn't really care how I felt about it. That just wasn't how they were programmed. What was important was is that they got jobs, that they worked hard, that they got a roof over our heads, they put food on the table, and honestly, and gave us an education, and that was front and foremost what was important. Not so much our feelings, not so much all of, um, well, I hate, you know, that idea of children should be seen and not heard, 
that was prevalent in the family. Even though we knew we were loved, we weren't really all that important, I want to say. Um, we were given choices. We were given a lot of freedom. It was a, it was a great place, I think. Uh, in retrospect, it was a great place. Not all six of my, all, not all my five siblings would agree to that. We all have our different experiences, but most of us would. I'm a kid who was addicted to approval. I knew, you know, being third out of six, what you had to do to get along. And so I was always kind of an easy going, yeah, that's fine, okay, no, I don't care, that kind of a kid. But I was ra- I was given an education Almost over 16 years of an education was delivered to me by nuns. And those nuns felt it was very important to, I don't want to say beat into us because they didn't, but to really emphasize the importance of love and service. Love and service for others. And so that idea, you know, to be other-directed. And I want to say... Love and service today in Al-Anon are critical in my recovery. But when I was young and I didn't know what I was up against, trying to practice a life of love and service did not turn out well for me because I was trying to fix something that was beyond, you know, that, that really was beyond my my pay grade. I I had no idea what I was into, but I knew whatever it was, it was beyond me. So, grew up in this nice family, you know, I always say middle kid, middle America, middle class, pretty, I mean, it was a good place. But I was the kind of kid who was always, again, you know, trying to do the right thing, always trying to follow the rules, but I was always attracted to those kids who broke the rules. And so it was no surprise that when a gal that I knew called me and asked me if I wanted to go out with her brother, when I met him, he just happened to be on leave from the United States Marine Corps. Uh, He was in flight school in Meridian, Mississippi. He was about four years older than I was, so I never never had run into him in my lifetime. And so when I met him, he was just... He was just so cocky. You know what I mean? He was just one of those pilots who can just be a Marine. Not to, if not, I mean, the Marines are great, I know, and, but they are cut from a different cloth. I mean, they just are. Everything that he said, you know, he just walked with a swagger. He could do so many things. And one of our first dates, he took me up in a plane. I had never flown before. He took me up in one of those little Piper Cubs, and uh, we're flying over the Ohio River. And he said to me, do you know what a stall is? And I... I don't know what a stall is. Well, I did then. By the end of the afternoon, I knew what a stall was. And after I got home, I mean, I said to his sister, Oh, my God, my heart is beating so fast. I think I'm in love. She said, That's not love. That's fear. You know, my sister-in-law, well, all my sister-in-laws are in AA, but... Then. But she always says to me, whenever I go to an AA convention, I always go to hear the Al-Anon speaker. And I say, because you know it's a family disease? She goes, no, because it makes me grateful I drank. <laughs> so anyway, so here I am. I'm still in college. And actually, I'm dating this really nice guy from Indianapolis. He was so kind. He used to send me flowers in the middle of the week. Who does that? But now I'm going out also with this guy, you know, this Marine guy out of Meridian, Mississippi, and now he's in Beeville, Texas. And I mean, he was just so exciting. And this is what I thought. Wouldn't it be fun to be with somebody who you never knew what they were going to do next? <laughs> I was 21. I mean, I, I, I say to people now, Did I pick the guy who sent me flowers during the week, or did I pick the guy that tried to tip me out of the top of the Ferris wheel? (laughs) Anyway, so that's who I picked. 
Well, you know what? I really, sometimes I talk too long, so I'm just going to go very quickly. So we never were in town. I went to Chicago to teach school, speaking of the Cubs. I went to Chicago to teach school. He went down to, um, but I'm also from Ohio. I mean, I'm torn. So anyway, I, I, who cares? I went to, uh, I went to Chicago to teach school. He's now in Beeville, Texas, and he's in uh, Havelock, North Carolina. We're never in town together. Ever. So it's all that long-distance dating. But every time we would get back to Cincinnati to date, it always ended up with his being angry. And I thought, and really primarily from where, because of the home from which I came, I thought, well, I, I can fix this. I mean, I can fix this because I came, you know, I have such, you know, I got a great family background. I had a father that used to always, whatever I did, he would say, that's great, kid. That's just great. I say, Dad, we're taking a, we're taking a class trip to Washington, D.C. How are we going to pay for it? I don't know, but we'll figure it out because that's going to be great, kid. I mean, everything was going to be great, kid. It's just the way, you know. It's just the way it was. And my mother, when I would come home with all these stories from the nuns, like, oh, my God, Mom, do you know what the nuns said? She would say, take that with a grain of salt. Take that with everything. They said, she would say, take that with a grain of salt. So I grew up with a really kind of relaxed, wonderful sense. And this guy was so intense and so driven and so exciting, I just thought I'd be able to calm him down. It was like a diamond in the rough. And I will tell you about him. Everything he did, he did well. I've never known anybody, really to this day, that was quite as talented as he was. Everything he did, he did well. He was just an extraordinary person. But that anger piece, that gave me pause. But I'll tell you, <clears throat> I ignored it. I ignored it because I thought I could fix it. And he made an announcement very quickly one day. Um, it was Christmas time, and I knew, you know, he knew he was going to have to go to Vietnam. I was in for Christmas break. He, were, he invited me to his home for a dinner, family dinner. He told his family he had an announcement. I had no idea what this announcement was going to be. He announced that we were getting married. I was like, I, I, that stunned me because I'm in the middle of a contract up in Chicago teaching school. And, I mean, I thought we would probably get married, but we really hadn't talked about it. <laughs> but this is the kind of person I am. That sounds so crazy. But how would it look if I would say, you know, we really haven't talked about that yet. I have to finish teaching school. You've got to go to Vietnam. We need to, we need to stop and think about this. No, not me. Because I'm the kind of kid that wanted you to have the responsibility for those kinds of decisions. Because if everything blew up in our face, you were responsible. It wasn't me. I didn't make that decision. And so that reluctance to take responsibility really is something that Al-Anon has just from the very get-go help me with, to become responsible, to become responsible for my recovery, to become responsible for my spiritual, emotional, and physical health. That's been important for me, really important. But when I was 21, 22 years old, I was more than willing to let you take the reins so I didn't have to, so I didn't have to be responsible. And so we got married very quickly. We got married in January. I got pregnant in February, and he got his orders to go to Vietnam in March. Ten days into the marriage, I knew that I was in over my head. Ten days into the marriage, there was this huge explosion over opening a wedding gift without his being home, and I knew it was just so over the top that I had to get out of there. I had to get out of there. But I didn't know where I would go. I was in Havelock, North Carolina. And if there are two obstacles to my recovery early on, and still can be, it's looking good and being right. And how would that look if I went home after 10 days of marriage and said, I can't put my finger on it, but something here is wrong, really wrong. So he got his orders to go to Vietnam. I was never so happy in my life. That sounds horrible, but 
Oh, my God, I couldn't wait for that squad. Thank God I didn't have a watch. I would have been constantly, when is that squadron moving out? But the dishonesty that began for me began early on because I'm with all these other Marine Corps wives who are really distressed about their husbands going to Vietnam. I'm looking forward to it. So I have to pretend like, Oh, this, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And some of them would say, let's all just stay in this trailer camp in Havelock, North Carolina. We can sign up for pottery classes. We can do this. We can do that. And I'm like, oh, holy mother of God, get me out of here. So I'm like, no, I think I better go home. So I went home, moved back in with my parents, couldn't have called the priest faster than I did because I, I didn't know what to do. And as I was walking out of my parents' home to meet with this priest that had married us, my mother said to me, I hope you're not going to tell him anything personal. <laughs> because that's just the way it was. That's just the way that it was. So, you know, I spent a lot of time while he was gone with his sisters smoking a lot of cigarettes, trying to figure him out. It just is so funny to me today because all of us have been in recovery now for so long. But early on, we spent so much time smoking and talking about him (laughs) and what was wrong with him. Never was the focus on us, none of us. We were just trying to figure out what was wrong with him, you know, and what could we do to change him. Now, this is what's important for me to remember. Ten days in, I knew something was wrong, and I could have trusted my instinct and left. But when I made the decision to stay, from there on in, all of that was me. All of that was me. Because I find in Al-Anon, for me, You know, slipping into blame and shame and criticism and judgment is not good for my spiritual health. It is not good. And interestingly enough, I just really got a text from this friend of mine. I have two college, well, I have a number of friends that I stay in touch with from grade school through high school through college. But these two gals I'm particularly close to, and as I'm emptying out my mother's house, of course, in her basement, I have my wedding albums, because why would I want them? (laughs) And everybody's like, you got to take your wedding albums now. And so I'm like, okay, I'll take them. And I opened them up. Here are my two college friends standing in the receiving line with me, and they're both laughing and laughing. And I took a picture of it with my phone and messaged them and said, why are you so, why are you both laughing? You knew then he was crazy. And <laughs> one of them texted back and she said, Kathy, but look at your children that you, you know, you have with him. They're such a blessing. And I got right back to her and I said, everything in my life today, everything in my life today that is good and is of value is a result of that marriage. I'm not saying it wasn't difficult. It was very difficult. But where am I right now tonight? Watching the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians? No. I am here (laughs) at home with my poor husband who's crippled and has to have back surgery on Halloween, where I should be probably. No. I'm here with you. And I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be happier. So... Anyway, I don't know where I am, but so he comes back from Vietnam and uh, he decided to become a dentist, which just makes no sense whatsoever. If you've, I mean, I've known a number of dentists. Never have I gone to a dentist like him. But there you have it. You know, I, I don't know, except in Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, I have never known a dentist like him. <clears throat> but that's what he decided to do with the GI Bill. Right before he left for dental school at Ohio State, he was beaten up in a bar, um, had to have surgery to fix a tear duct that had been torn apart by a bouncer. It was just a mess. But for the next three years, at that time, Ohio State was doing three straight years of dental school instead of four. There was no drinking. There was no drinking. And I thought it was because I had been so patient and (laughs) long-suffering 
I don't know about you, but I was raised by nuns that taught me the importance of suffering. (laughs) But it had to be silent or it didn't count. (laughs) So that's what I thought. See, it's all working. Now he's not drinking. He's finding success in dental school. This is great. We're involved in this marriage encounter stuff with the church. We're giving weekends. Oh, what a scary thought. We were giving weekends to other couples. I mean, we were just... I thought it was great. I was on top of the world. We moved back to Cincinnati when he got his degree, and everything went to hell. Everything went to hell. Very quickly, it went to hell because now he's writing himself prescriptions for narcotics. Yeah, I and I completely missed that. I mean, I'm I'm not good with the drugs. The alcohol I get, but I missed, I missed that. And the truth of the uh, the truth of the matter was that he was also drinking but not at home. <clears throat> so he was thrown out of dentistry pretty quickly. And <clears throat> what followed then was unemployment. And unemployment is frightening. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but now we've got kids and um, no job. We're living in Cincinnati. We're living in a house that his parents own. We can't pay them rent. We can't pay utilities. We, we're just flat out broke. And I'm married to a guy who not only is a jet pilot, He's also a dentist, although his license is suspended. And it's just trying to spin that into something that sounds sane and exciting was my work. When I was a kid, my father used to say, you should go into public relations. And I'd say, why do you say that, Dad? Well, now I know why. Because I took that situation and made it sound like it was the most exciting life and we were having such a great time. And it wasn't true that he was unemployed. He'd become a fox hunter. And after all, (laughs) fur trapping is a good profession. Well, it it was in the 1780s, but in the the 1980s, it didn't bring in a lot of cash. But I made it sound like I was married to, you know, the original Renaissance man. And, oh, dentistry wasn't for him. He's fox hunting and he's selling the fur. And, oh, he's also raising bees and he's got this wonderful garden. And honest to Pete, he, he could do all those things and he did them all well. But things were so tense in that family. And I'm constantly trying to run interference between him and the kids and and telling them that what they were seeing and what they were hearing wasn't really what they were seeing and what they were hearing. And I'm gathering evidence against him. I can only imagine how wonderful it would be to be married to someone that's always building a case against you. But that's what I was doing because I thought that in the future, I just didn't know how long I could stand living like this. And I had to make sure that you knew that I was right and he was wrong. So I had to gather all that evidence. Oh, it was exhausting (laughs) gathering all that evidence. So what happened was this. Um, One of his sisters uh, joined AA. And then another sister joined, and then another sister joined, and pretty soon I've got four sister-in-laws who are in Alcoholics Anonymous and who are still, as I said, they're still in AA today and good members of AA, actually. Three in Cincinnati, um, one out in Colorado. They're, they're delightful, just absolutely delightful women. So, <clears throat> you know, they just keep coming around because I was renting this house next to their parents' home, so they're, they're around me a lot. And they're talking about alcoholism being a family disease. And they're talking about being, it had been in their family for years. And see, here I am, you know, trying to pound that square peg into a round hole still. Twelve and a half years later, there I am, thinking that someday I'll say the right thing and he will change. Twelve and a half years waiting for somebody to change. So they're talking about this stuff, and I knew they wanted me to go to Al-Anon, but quite frankly, I really didn't want to go. I'm I'm not a big group person. I'm like, oh, God, I've already been to the priests, to the psychics. I've been to the social workers. I mean, I had been everywhere. I was just worn out, really worn out. Um, One social worker said to me, you need to speak to him in I statements. So I would say to him, I hate you. (laughs) There's my I statement. And strangely, and this is, of course, totally against my particular faith, 
I went to a psychic and she almost nailed it. She kept saying, I see help for you in the basement of churches. <laughs> really, I'm not promoting that, but just as it happened, that's what she said. So anyway, so I thought, you know, what the hell? I'm pregnant now with child number seven, and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, what do I have? What, do I have a room full of Baptists in here? What the? So I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, if this is a family disease, I'm never going to get away from this. This is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. I will never get away from this insanity. I better go. I better go and find out about what's going on here. So that's what I did. On April the 5th, 1982, I went to a beginner's meeting uh, of Al-Anon in Cincinnati. And I went to a meeting that was way out in the country because, God forbid, anybody would see me that I needed help. Oh, please, not me. Maybe you need help, but I don't need help. I've got this figured out, and we're having a grand time in my house with the bees and the honey and the garden and the fox and, you know... (laughs) The leg hold traps around the house, oh yeah, oh yeah. The neighbors that keep calling because they're missing their cats, oh yeah. Because now he's got infrared glasses and he hunts at night. So I say to him, you're not shooting cats, are you? I love cats. I said, you're not shooting cats, are you? And he's like, <clears throat> not skinny ones. I'm like, I'm like, What? He goes, Kathy, those house cats are fed. Those people let them out. They kill in all the quail and the pheasants in our fields. So you know what happens to somebody like me? I have to adjust my thinking to make sense of that. That's why so many of us get so, you know, you talk about, I'm always trying to stay one step ahead of insanity. There's no way to, for me to do that without myself becoming insane. I thought I was adjusting to marriage. I'm trying to adjust to alcoholism, and there's no way to do it. It was the same way with all of his bird feeders. He had a gun that he kept next to our bed, and because he didn't have a job, he could hunt from bed, and he would keep the window. This is a horrible story. Why are you laughing? He would keep the windows open, and God forbid if a blue jay came anywhere near his bird feeders, I would say, Rick, you can't shoot the birds. And he would say, Blue jays are the felons of the bird world. They steal other birds' eggs. I mean, he would go on with this long list of wrongs that blue jays inflict on other birds. So I would have to run out of house. I would have to run and say to the kids, don't play on that side of the house today. Dad's hunting. You know. <clears throat> and I thought I was this responsible mother. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I was living with all the time. All the time. And I was, as again, I was exhausted. When I came into Al-Anon, and I was pregnant, I weighed, I was, I looked like a stick figure. And I had my hair, oh my God, my hair was just, was always in a ponytail. And, you know, I'm telling you this now because I had cancer. Right after I told Sue that I would be her co-chair, I'm diagnosed with cancer. It was crazy. But anyway, so um, it's so I'm doing it's so nice to have hair again because I lost all my hair and it came back and when it came back it came back stark white and my kids and of course you know it's about a half of an inch of the stark white hair. My kids started calling me last year and still call me. I don't know if anybody watches The Walking Dead. But they're like, how are you doing, Carol? They call me Carol from The Walking Dead. They still call me Carol from The Walking Dead. But anyway, so um, <laughs> so I've never had my hair this long. I just can't decide what to do with it yet because I haven't had it for so long. But I used to wear my hair in this crazy ponytail, and uh, I weighed next to nothing, and I'm pregnant, and I'm a wreck, a wreck until I found you, until I found you. And I want to say this. That first night I walked in my Al-Anon meeting, that beginner's group, I knew I finally, after all the places I had been, I knew I was exactly where I was supposed to be. I knew you had it. You had the answers. 
You were where I was supposed to be. I was so grateful that you showed up on that night, April the 5th, because it was Easter week, it was crummy, it was rainy, it was cold, and there you were. And you told me that I was dealing with a disease that I could not control, I couldn't cure, and I did not cause. I never thought I caused it, but I always thought I should be able to cure it or control it. You know, sometimes I, well, we always say in our closing, you know, the opinions that, the opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. And that's true for the opinions that you hear in meetings. But it's certainly not true for the principles of this program. It's certainly not true for the principles of this program. Because you taught me important things about what I was, what I could do, the serenity prayer. You taught me what I was absolutely powerless over. You showed me through your own experience, strength, and hope those things that I could change, and you gave me the promise of the wisdom to know the difference. And I picked that up at my first meeting. And you know, that's why for me, meetings, healthy meetings are critical. Because there are too many people who are introduced to Al-Anon and they're attending meetings where the focus is not on us. It remains on the alcoholic. And that, to me, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And that's why when we work with beginners, we suggest that they get to a number of meetings because there's nothing sicker than a sick meeting, really. There's nothing sicker. And I like to say to beginners, you know, Al-Anon is not my whole life. It's not my whole life. But it allows me to lead a life that is whole. It allows me to lead a life that is whole. And that's huge. So I'm with you, and you're telling me I just simply have to learn to let go and let God, that alcoholism is a family disease, and my responsibility is to recover from the effects of that disease myself. That this me, that Al-Anon is about me, and I simply have to put my loving, darling, sick husband in the hands of a power greater than myself. And that's what I heard. I think I heard that all on the first night, although that couldn't be possible. But that's my memory, that that's what I heard. You taught me that phrase, you could be right. You could be right. So instead of going home and arguing, because I always thought that I was the keeper of truth and justice in the relationship, you taught me I could simply say, you know, you could be right. And what happened to me, you know, we say we don't feel our way into new behavior. We act our way into new, we act our way into recovery. We don't feel our way into it. We act our way into new behavior. And so by saying that, you could be right. You could be right. I began to believe that I did not have the corner of the market on truth. That there was so many unanswered questions and so many things about myself, about my true self, which is the theme of this convention that I was simply unaware of. And how could I ever take someone else's inventory or ascribe motives to someone else when I'm not even sure about who I am or what my motives are? All those wonderful gems, you know, those just those gems you kept dropping out of your pockets, meeting after meeting, I took to you like a duck to water. I took to you like a duck to water. So I kept coming back. And, you know, in that One Day at a Time book, I think that's where it is, there is a quote, uh, I think it's in June, from Thomas Merton, that says, the beginning of love is to allow those we love to be themselves perfectly. That's what you taught me I could do. You taught me a way that I could continue to love my husband without getting caught up into the quicksand that alcoholism is. That's, that's huge. That's huge. You taught me, well, let me just say very quickly, when I was diagnosed with cancer, <clears throat> one of the things, the good news is they caught it early. The bad news is it's an aggressive form of cancer, 
But what it allowed me to do through chemo, um, because I had to kind of pay attention to my surroundings and stay away from germs and whatever, I don't know, whatever they told me to do, I pretty much did it. I always say to people, if you've got to get cancer, it's good to get it when you're healthy. It makes it a lot easier. So anyway, so I spent a lot of quiet time, a lot of quiet time. And what I came to was how grateful I was for my life. And if it's going to be cut short, I am, I am so grateful that it has been what it has been. But that is largely due to this program. But the other piece is this, I think. It's not that I'm afraid of dying, I don't think. What I'm afraid of is wasting my time. That's what I'm afraid of. And so Al-Anon, one more time, weaves itself into that idea of living an intentional life. Because that's what it invites us into, through the steps, through the, through the traditions, even through the concepts and the warranties. It invites us to lead a life that is intentional. So I can begin to really think, who is it that I believe that God invites me to be? Who is it that God has challenges me to be? And then to, one day at a time, become that woman. Become that woman. That's some of the things that Al-Anon has done for me. And that phrase, don't waste your breath, that's taken on new meaning for me. Don't, I, you've taught me, don't waste your breath. Don't waste your breath on things that are really none of your business. That's what you've said to me. And so that wisdom of the group, that wisdom of the group has become so important to me. That idea of how insane it has been for me, expecting someone always to change. The other thing that strikes me as being insane is not to come to terms with the grief that is associated with alcoholism. Not only my husband, to watch him, but my kids. I've had, you know, I've shown up in a court of law with two children of mine at separate times, two sons, in uh, handcuffs and shackles. That's painful. That's painful. There's no, my sponsor always says, there's no inoculation for that kind of pain. But this is the good news about that. I've never had to walk through any of that by myself. I've never had to walk through that by myself. But when someone will say to me, well, he's just out there still working on his lead, that's not a comfort to me. That's not a comfort to me. What's a comfort to me is when you come to me and you say, you know, I've had a son in jail too. I know that can be difficult. These are some of the things that I've done that have helped me with that. Because for me to say that, you know, my heart doesn't break when I see my children suffer as a result of this disease, that to me is its own form of insanity. And I will never be true to myself by, by, put, by pretending, by pretending. But the good news is I have never done that alone. I go to meetings and sit elbow to elbow and shoulder to shoulder with men and women who have buried their children as a result of this disease, with men and women who do have no idea where their kids are today, and yet they continue to show up and lead lives of grace and service and courage and hope. Those are the kinds of meetings that I go to. Those are the kinds of meetings that I go to. So all these things, you know, been so helpful for me over the years when I first came in and still today. You know, the idea of turning my life and will over to the care of God. The idea of getting a sponsor and working a fourth step so I could examine those four M's, managing, martyrdom, manipulation, and mothering. Did I already say mothering? You know what, my, what someone in my home group says? Mothering? Why does that have to be a bad thing? Mothering is a good thing. Let's change it to smothering. <laughs> Whatever it is. You know, I mean, I never, in 12 and a half years of marriage, why, I was, wasn't paying a bit of attention to me, my role in it, my piece in it. I was so focused on him. And I have to say, he was so outrageous. He made it so easy. <laughs> I mean... He made it so easy. 
He was so obviously the bad guy. I just jumped on every the big bandwagon. But what, I mean, how did it, how much that stunted my growth? How much it stunted my growth? Because this program really is rooted in a spirituality of letting go, of letting go of it. So to do a fourth step with my sponsor, to do a fifth step, I mean, and to do, you know, share with her through the fifth step, the exact nature of my wrongs, it brought me to a place of forgiveness, really, not only of myself, but of others, and ultimately the world. I mean, it just, I don't know, it just stretched my heart is what it did. Doing a fourth and fifth step, I believe, and then on with the sixth and seventh, of course, just has led me into a place of greater compassion. <clears throat> I work with a group, I mean, there are about four, four to five, there's six of us actually in this group that I didn't want to join. They just, I mean, we just started a few months ago. They're like, hey, let's take the new um, blueprint for progress, you know, the big one, and let's, do, let's meet like once a month and we'll just go through it together. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to do that. That blueprints were progress. I mean, the first time I did it was a pain in the ass. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I hate the blueprint for progress. But like many of us, I suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out. So I was like, all right. It's been wonderful. It has been great. That new thing, that new blueprint for progress, it's delightful. We are having the greatest time. And all we share with one another is not the whole thing. It would take us years. But in each, in each heading, there's a, the, the last question is, what have you learned from doing this section? And we share with one another what we have learned. And then we all, of course, intend to take the whole thing to our sponsors. But... <clears throat> The original fourth step that I did, it was just, it just was when I knew I was serious, when I had to make those amends to my husband, when I had to tell him honestly that I had made him responsible for all my happiness. I gave him a job that wasn't his and then resented him when he, when he, of course, failed at it, when he, of course, failed at it. And I had made those amends to him. Three years after I made those amends, my husband was killed in a helicopter crash. And the last thing I said to him on the last day of his life is he was walking out the dining room door of that little rented house. I said to him, wow, what a gorgeous day to fly. Have a ball. And you know, you are the ones that allowed me to speak those words because you are the ones that continually told me that I was not married to a bad guy. I was married to a sick guy. And my sister-in-laws would say to me, you know, when he comes after you, I mean, he had a horrible temper, just imagine fear is stamped on his forehead. It made a huge difference. It made a huge difference. When I don't take alcoholism personally, it makes a huge difference. But when he died, I was left with seven kids under the age of 14. And some of them had already gotten into trouble. And so for the next 20-some years, till that little guy who was 20, he was just, I mean, two, till he got to be 21, 22, for the next 20 years, my focus was really being in relationship with those kids. And my kids are really, like their father, they're really very intense kids. And a lot of them got into a lot of trouble. Some of them got into a little bit of trouble, but some of them got into big trouble. And what you taught me was to, to show up, to not to take them personally. And I never did. I knew those kids weren't doing it to me. They were just, you know, my one son says, Mom, I was a 14-year-old kid whose father died suddenly, and I just acted out all those emotions. And you know what my response to that is? You could be right. I don't know. Out of those seven, I've had three who've joined AA, and that's, and that's wonderful, and I've got one in Al-Anon. And that's wonderful. Two have since decided, one's decided he's not really alcoholic, he was brainwashed, and the other one just isn't... Uh, <laughs> whatever. And the other one just, you know, he just isn't done drinking. And he's very open about that. He just says, I'm not done drinking. 
Well, I guess he's not. So, you know, I stay, I stay with my own recovery. That's all I know to do is one day at a time stick with what I know. And that's what you've taught me. But those years of raising those kids alone, um, I could not have done it without you. I could not have done it without, without your encouragement to go to court. To go, I mean, all these things that happened, I'll say very quickly. When he died, I had an expired elementary school teaching certificate. Two months after he died, I got a call from a local high school. Well, first of all, we had to move uh, for a million reasons, but we had to move into the city. And <clears throat> so we, we moved from a, a horse farm into really the center of the city. And my kids loved it. They discovered how to get, use those buses. I mean, oh, my God, it was before cell phones, trying to keep track of them. It was just crazy. But nonetheless... I got a phone call two months after he died from this local high school who said, didn't you go to a Catholic college? This brother. I said, yeah, I did. And he said, well, I have a friend of yours here in the office who teaches here. I know her very well. She's a lifelong friend of mine. And he said, we have an opening for a theology teacher, high school. Can you do it? I said, well, I don't even have a high. I, I have an elementary. It's expired. I, he goes, we don't care. Just go. <laughs> I don't think they could do that today, but they did it then. He said, oh, we don't care. We'll figure that. We'll figure that out later. We'll give you all your insurance. We'll just give you everything. Just come in and sign some papers, and you can start. You know, you'll start next month. So, I mean, that's that's what happened to me. I started at this high school, and my kids could all go to school free there, and we moved into the city, and I had a job, and I mean... It just, everything just kind of fell into place. My kids still today say, how did all that happen? Well, I just think it happened through the grace of God. That's the only answer that I have. I think it happened just through the grace of God. We were taken care of. And just like my mother said, all will be well. It, it just turned out. Was it how I envisioned my life? Oh, not at all. It was much better in so many ways. It was so much better. And so I would teach school. They were in school with me, some of them. Some of them went into other schools. All of them got free rides to college through their father's service in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War, free scholarship to every, free tuition to every university in the state of Ohio. What a gift. What a gift. They all had jobs. We lived in the city. They could walk to their jobs. But on top of that, we did have a lot of trouble. But again, Cooperate with the Cincinnati Police Department. Cooperate with juvenile court. Cooperate. Juvenile court referee adopted a child from China. All of her co-workers invited, had a big wedding. I mean, not a wedding. They had a big baby shower for her when the baby arrived. I got an invitation. That's how often I was in juvenile court. That's how often I was. And you know, I'll tell you, I wasn't, I wasn't a great mother. I really wasn't. I, I was just, I took the kids to a grief counselor once and oh, they were being horrible and he threw them out. I mean, he just said, get out of here. Just go in the waiting room and tear up magazines. Get out of here. So he, I, we threw them out and I said to him, I don't know how I can raise these kids by myself. And he said, oh, you can't. You're understaffed. <laughs> it was the greatest news. Because from there on in, I just one day at a time tried to do the best I could. I know this AA gal, and she runs. She used to run a rehab out in California. And she said one time to me, um, she was on her way to deliver a paper to parents in Las Vegas about how to keep teenagers sober. And at that time, I had at least two drinking. I mean, I had a number of teenagers, but two of them were drinking heavily. And I said to her, well, what is the secret? I mean, what do you mean? How do you get a teenager sober? Because I haven't found the solution yet. She said, well, the secret is you can't. You can't. What you can do is just take, you know, small actions, interrupt their drinking, and hope they stay alive long enough to get in recovery. And so that's just all I could do was just to parent my children as best I could and hope, as I still do today, that some of them will stay alive long enough to get into recovery. 
They are surrounded by recovery. That's the good news. They are surrounded by a family who's a large family who's in recovery. I'll tell you a story really quickly, and then I'm going to not go much longer. Um, my one of the kids was um, <clears throat> they went to this local uh, grade school right down the street, which is why we moved back into the city to make everything so much easier. So the principal calls and says we're having a problem. Uh, could you come down before you before you go to the high school and talk with the teachers? So I said, of course I will. Of course I will. What time do you want me there? 7.30. Oh, great. So I get down there at 7.30, and the weather is looking very iffy, you know, kind of sleeting, icing. I'm like, oh, my God. So I go in, and there's my little kid sitting in a little chair surrounded by all these teachers, adults, and the principal. And I say, what, you know, Help me understand how I can be of, how I can help here. And the first teacher says, whenever anybody in the classroom sneezes, he falls out of his desk. I think that's hilarious. I love that. But I don't say that. I'm just like, all right. And the next one, he taps his pencil on the desk. He knows it annoys me. I'm like, oh, for the love of God. Okay. And then the next one had something, the next one, and then the science teacher adored him, and she didn't even understand why she was there. She loved him. It was great. But I could just see my son sinking further and further down into his chair, and the principal finally said, you know, I think we've heard enough, and I think we're all agreed that we'll work together on this situation. And I said, yes, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate it. We'll work on it at home. And I fingered the kid. I said, you come with me. So I put him out in the front seat of my car, and I said to him, you know, Nick, nothing that you have done is bad. It's just so annoying. As a teacher, I can tell you that. It's just so annoying. You're going to have to knock it off. But having said that, I know wherever your father is, up there, somewhere in this universe, he is looking down today. And he is so proud of you because you are really, you're such a great kid, Nick. You are just such a great kid. Now you go back into that school and you knock him dead today. He looked up with me, up at me with tears in his eyes and he said, I'm Daniel. <laughs> what? Get out of the car. <laughs> That's how I parented. I was like, whatever, there's an ice storm, just go, 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 you know. But anyway, so that's, you know, that was just kind of crazy. And so um, really being entirely ready, humbly asking God, making those amends. You know, I've always heard, giving your, you're giving your kids a healthy parent is the most powerful amends you can make to your children. I still believe that's true, and they're adults. I still try to give them a healthy parent as best I can and stay out of their business. Oh, but I couldn't do that without you. I couldn't because I leak. I go and I hear all this good stuff, and then I forget about it, or it, it just, it, I, I don't know. That's why I need to read the literature. That's why I need to be come to meetings. That's why I still have a sponsor. That's why I sponsor women. That's why it's important for me to do those inventories and to share it with someone and to devote quality time to prayer and meditation. Because I do believe that we were all invited into this intimate relationship with God. We're all invited into that relationship. And I'm just willing these days to respond more and more and more and not waste my breath or my time on things that are none of my business, that are simply none of my business. So after, after most of my kids were raised, you know that nice little guy from Indiana who used to send me flowers during the week? <laughs> Don't ask me. But all, I get a letter from him, and I had known where he was. He'd, he, he just, we had always stayed in touch because we had so many mutual friends. He comes back into my life, and the year that the last kid graduated from college, he and I got married. I know. It was just, you know what was cool about it, and I'll go very quickly, is that 
we, you know, he, all of his grade school friends were there. All my grade school friends were there. His high school friends, my high school friends, our mutual college friends were there. His AA people, he's got 26 years in. My Al-Anon and AA people, it was just such a merging of all the goodness and blessings in our life. And there, you could not believe if you were standing in that church. My mother was my maid of honor. His name is Dan. Rick and I named our youngest kid after him. That's how, what a great guy he is. When we were pregnant with this last one, I was like, if this is a boy and I don't get that Madeline, he goes, well, what, what name should we call him? And I was like, well, remember that guy who used to date Dan? Oh, he was such a nice guy. I said, why don't we call him Daniel? <laughs> he was his best man. But you could not have been there without believing in a God who can bring healing out of suffering, who can bring peace out of chaos, and who can bring so much good into this world. You could not have been there without believing that. And the best thing about this guy is he's never been married before. He has no children, and I like to say that's what I call a double winner. (laughs) Yes. So that's it. So anyway, so I'm just very happy to be here today. I don't know that I said what I, I mean, I'll think later, oh, why didn't I say it? But who cares? Uh, When one of my youngest kids, one of my kids who did not go to an Ohio State school, she won a scholarship to St. Louis University. When I went up for her graduation, the woman that was, uh, I guess she was president of St. Louis. I don't know what she was, but she was given the commencement address, and she was late. And she was apologizing to the parents, and she said, I'm sorry I'm so late, but my little boy just learned the Lord's Prayer, and he wanted to recite it, and so I wanted to stay and listen to it. And she said, this is what he said. Our Father who art in heaven, how'd you know my name? (laughs) And you know, when she said that some years ago, I thought, that's the gift for me of Al-Anon. That's the gift of someone knowing my true self. Al-Anon has put me back in relationship with a God who knows my name. And for that, I'm so very grateful. Thank you. Thank you.